welcome to the Two Medics podcast. My name's Beth and John. I'm a GP trainee, ex-neurosurgery trainee. This is the second time I'm recording this introduction because I messed up the first time. And today <laughs> and I have with hi. me... Hello, yes, hi. There he is. Hi, hi. Here I am. My name's Dusha Goodawardner. I'm a cardiology registrar, subspecialising in intervention. It's all a bit weird, isn't it? Because today is Monday. The bit, yes. So this will be going out Monday midnight. So it's all a bit out of sync. But we're here. We are. And it's my fault that we're late. And it's my fault that I just probably oh. took two times to Good try time. to record the intro because I've hurt my back this weekend doing something with the Christmas yeah. decorations, which sounds so middle class, but yeah, I don't know what I've done. Oh. And for the past 48 hours, I've been off my head on painkillers and still am now. So if there are any bizarre moments, let's just pretend it's because of that. Yeah, but yeah, enough. better late than never, isn't it? I guess. Having your back hurt is like, is awful, isn't it? Because it affects everything you do. Literally everything. You can't reside in peace because your back. Yeah, exactly. Like breathe hurting. in peace, man. I'm like, you can't yeah. even breathe. But this is and like, this is it. Yeah, you're right. It's miserable. It's miserable. And especially, it's so common at work, isn't it, as well, to do stuff that involves your back and you don't really ever think about it. So I feel for you. I hope you feel better soon. Thanks, um, man. I, I can't, I don't, yeah, I don't know what happened or what. It's just agony. And I've never had, well, it was like muscle aches and stuff before, but I've never experienced like proper back pain and sciatica and stuff. Yeah. But my poor dog, like I can't even bend down to stroke her. So I feel like I'm doing this like oh. air stroking like motion <laughs> because I'm just like, I can't reach you. You're lying down. Yeah. Get but a little yes. stick. Yeah. Oh yeah. With a tiny hand on the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, with a really comically small hand. Yeah, those little, yeah. But how are you, man? Are you okay? You're moving on. (laughs) You're moving on. Sorry. I'm okay. I think I'm still coughing and stuff. Whether this is from me being ill before or if this is like a new thing, I don't even know anymore. If this is like my new life now, I'd like it not to be because I feel quite tight. Yeah, we're uh, falling apart, mate. We are falling apart. Got to get him ran back. Just unfreezing. Yeah, he looks. Yeah, good. exactly. He's been cryogenically frozen, so we've just yeah. got to thaw him out and then bring His him out. Tina is going in reverse. And he'd yeah. be like, yeah, he'd be like, I, the power of money. And there you yeah. go. Cash Life is lessons. king. Cash is king. Yes, yes. Okay, so before we get onto the topics, because we're talking beforehand about how we're excited to talk about these topics, before we do, we should talk about our sponsors. So Scrubs at C R B S underscore UK. You can check out their website, which is scrbs.co.uk to check out their new line of scrubs. So they've got scrubs that come in surgical blue, navy, or green. And you can get them as trousers, joggers. And they, they make scrubs that are really comfortable, practical, durable, and they just look the business. Got pockets everywhere. Just it's the next level in comfort. Do check them out. And if you use our promo code, which is 2medics, T-W-O-M-E-D-I-C-S-10, you get 10% off. And I think, I think it's a... It's, a small amount of money that I think just provides you with just a little bit more like a nicer fit because you're always just trying to you're always just making do aren't you with the work scrubs and you're stuck with the extra smalls and just these ridiculous sizes left in the pile usually by the time I get to them and also it's it's quite um, nice though to know that they are yours and lots of other people's crotches haven't been in them like only your crotch has like i quite like that when you put it that way actually you're making a case hard sell isn't it yeah yeah you're right so yeah do do check them out treat yourself as bethan would say she could just say that (laughs) r.i.p um (laughs) less yeah so yes (laughs) before i not before the end of the podcast an hour left yeah you've got it yeah you've got to like i've got it in me yeah 
start starting with Johnny Gookian. Gooks, do you want to tell us this first one we put in? I think this is yes. a lovely genius. It thing. is good. It sums up quite a lot of what people are thinking, yeah. I think. Johnny wrote, it should be okay to believe both that social media anonymous escalation cannot be a reliable long-term means of achieving sustainable educational change and existing formal escalation channels are badly in need of reform to safeguard learners and provide oversight. Because that's the argument we hear all the time from anonymous accounts, isn't it? Is that this is the only way that we can escalate things and they dox people and they post emails, screenshots and all that jazz. But... Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that kind of, I guess, is attributed to anonymous accounts on Twitter, right? I think they're... There definitely has been a proliferation of them that kind of seem to be more of the kind of vibes from Reddit. And they, mm. they would be used by people to, yeah, to say stuff that people perhaps wouldn't feel so confident saying from their own main account. And um, I don't think they're the only people that were doing that. Like when we started the podcast, I'd get DMs from people with stuff that I'd post anonymously. And I think it, what would happen, understandably, is that people would see anonymously that stuff's happening and they'd feel outraged about it and stuff would change people would be like mm. this is unacceptable and people would have their behavior judged from a wider audience and yes but i think johnny raises an important point which is how sustainable is that long-term use of outrage like when they're coming forward with these kind of stories of what's going on i just don't i'm not sure like how much whether trusts will continue to bend to the outrage oh. on social media. I'm just not sure. Yeah. And I think he's right to say the part of the reason why it's happening and people are turning to that is because they don't feel like the escalation channels that we have available are robust or have any teeth or are taken seriously in any real way. And we do need to be working on making those better. Can't just rely on outrage. Definitely. Uh, and I think it's yeah. as well. So I think that's true in general about lots of things. Like you had an issue with Deliveroo this week. Like every time I've got an issue with a company and stuff, people do, myself included, will turn to social media first because you can try every other channel, like the help portion of the website and you just get hit against a brick wall. Oh no, you're not, that's not the phrase. You hit the brick wall. You're, yeah, not being struck by a wall. Anyhow. But yeah, and it's, but that's the thing. It's because of the social media is public and it's obviously that's what people care about is their kind of appearance and we can't afford this to get out of hand and things often just seem to be nipped in the bud then when you raise them on Twitter I think outside of medicine and I think with medicine yeah. I, I get it absolutely you're right in terms of it's got to that point hasn't it where we all people are just turning to social media and I think the issue with doing that anonymously is even though people are saying they're fearful of getting reported or whatever happens next I think when it's constant anonymous people raising these things I think people who can change things maybe take it less seriously because whenever mm. there's some sort of debate, I keep seeing people like, "Oh, you, if you were to come out, if you were to come away from behind your anonymous Twitter handle and talk about this properly, like face to face or whatever, then I'm happy to engage." But you have the people say, "Oh, you haven't got the balls to do that," and I, it's not about mm. that. And I, I do get it why anonymous people feel like maybe they can't do become public about it and discuss it with their full name. But I think my worry is that when it's always like anonymous people bringing it up, it, whether it does get sometimes taken a bit less seriously and whether people, instead of yeah. seeing it as a certain like valid opinion about something, 
it starts getting treated like a slanging match because it often gets personal and then there's lots of back and forth yeah. where I don't know if that would happen if we all just did that face to face or with, with our own yeah. identities. Yeah. Like with anything, of course, there are like two sides and I don't think we're necessarily saying at all. I think I was obviously quite vocal about my distaste for like certain anonymous accounts because I just thought they'd behave like dicks. Mm. Um, that was, and so then that was taken to mean, I guess, I think all anonymous accounts are pointless, but I definitely don't think that's really the point that we're making. It's just that they're another symptom, really. The fact that people are feeling that way is a symptom of a wider problem. I mean, got, you linked like a really good example, which is from an anonymous account called the General Surgery Registrar that said, a colleague, a trainee just came to me after being told off in inverted commas, an apparent inappropriate social media post, and had been told to delete it immediately. I looked at the post for him. In it, he had expressed criticism of his current unit trainers in generic terms. It covered issues around the wider training culture and seemed very justified in my opinion. His account doesn't say where he works or even which specialty. He was dragged in front of his AES, so I guess that's academic educational supervisor, and training program director, and threatened with the postgraduate dean. No wonder there are so many non-trainee accounts, is what they say. And well done to Orthopod Reg, Lachlan, and Roshana for being willing to stick your necks out and highlight Brad practice, which is, I think, a nice ending because they literally put three non-anonymous accounts mm. who you speak up against being. Yeah. I, to I totally get that. And like I say, it's proved that point of why people do go anonymous. And this has happened to me. And that's mm -hmm. why it really struck a chord. Because I think it was uh, last year, the year before, I was invited to a, a meeting without colleagues, uh, without coffee, should we say, coffee. about, yeah, with, yeah, without colleagues and without coffee, unfortunately. But oh. but yeah, and it was about, like, I'd, I'd done an on-call shift in medicine in, like, the winter. And obviously it was horrendous. And it was, yeah, so it was an on-call medical shift on a weekend. And I've never posted about where I worked. I specifically i didn't say what specialty i was in at the time i don't think mm -hmm. i even had my full name on twitter and i just posted about some about the post take and how i've never seen things like the post i think the post take ward round was over 100 patients just in medicine alone and i just was lamenting i've never seen this before and i was pulled in mm -hmm. for that and i was like but it's all factual you don't i've never said where i've worked it's not breaching any confidentiality it's the state this is how the nhs is at the minute 100 people still doing the post take at nine o'clock at night and we started at nine o'clock in the morning it, it was trying to prove that point but it, i i got told off for that and i just didn't understand it wasn't a personal attack but so this whole social media thing is just getting it's too people are getting too precious about it i think in terms of our employers and management and stuff. So I do get why people do go anonymously, but I do worry it detracts from the topics that, that are being discussed. So like moving on to other kind of things. So this is a, a very kind of fun experience. A person had a very, the, the kind of quote tweet was of an initial tweet that said, you will never regret asking a colleague for advice if you're not sure. Whether it's a peer, a senior, or someone in a different role to you, if you're not certain, ASK in capital letters. And then the quote tweet said, it's got like a kind of confused face. It said, when I, the CT2, made to act up as sole medreg on nights for ward, take MA, so medical HDU in a busy DGH with two FYs for company, I was fast bleeped. I fast bleeped the sleeping ICU reg for help with a blocked query tensioning chest drain. And she shopped me to my ES and TPD as incompetent and acopic Yes, also, um, yeah. I guess that was a way of saying that, oh yeah, there is that kind of lip service stuff that 
people say on social media do like to appear. Oh, yeah, just ask. Just come to us. Our doors are always open. But is it really? Is it really open? And yeah, and that, that's it, isn't it? And I think we've all got experiences like that where people will sometimes say, oh, no questions, too stupid. And then you ask a question and you ask for help and you're ridiculed and made to feel like you can't cope or whatever. And yeah, I had a similar experience with, funnily enough, another ICU reg when I was a, it was a neuro ICU reg when I was a neurosurgery reg. I remember being on night shift and just this patient had just been discharged from the unit. and I, was, I just need help with this. Like he's whatever. And they just said, oh, just give him a Piriton as if to say, oh, that'll just make him drowsy. And I was just like, no, you're really not getting it. And then eventually the, the consultant came in from home because I just kept escalating it because I and wasn't happy. And in the end, the patient ended up going back down to ITU. But that reg who had asked for some advice and some help was very much like, oh, I'm the ITU doctor here. So it's, it makes sense that you might be struggling. And I was just like, no, this is not it. But yeah, I think if I, people will do are cautious because of things like this. It's soul destroying when it happens as well. It is. I think the thing is, I guess I hate being fast asleep for stuff. I hate it because sometimes because you just get told to be somewhere. And mm. I think like for me that I think there's that demand avoidance or whatever. But I'm I'm like walking there being like, why then? Why are yeah, you calling? Yeah, that's why must I? And you get yeah. there and you're like, so why? What is it? You're you me. <laughs> exactly. How dare you? How dare you not tell me? I'm just demand <laughs> I tell her. Well, obviously that feeling is whatever. Obviously there's a situation where they feel like they can't explain it to you. And I've never felt so angry that I've been like, I've got to go tell the secret police and the TPD. Yeah, it is. Whatever. It's quite passive aggressive, isn't it? Being fast it's crazy, sometimes. Isn't it? Oh yeah. my days. There was a reply as well that said someone else was replying and said they had a similar situation about trying to insert an arterial line. And the response was, oh, you're lucky I am on tonight. And it's I'm like, I'm not lucky oh, though. God. If the patient actually needs us both. It's that, again, it's that passive yeah. aggression of, oh, if I wasn't here and it's, I don't know, maybe it makes people feel better about themselves, but it's, it's not being kind, yeah. is it? No, it's not being it's kind. It's not, it's the opposite. It's yeah. the opposite of that. I did get false bleeped once on this A&E consult. We got this call. I remember, so we got this call from a helicopter and they're bringing in someone who had a cardiac arrest or whatever. And they're like half an hour away. And what they usually do is they'll call the, like, the primary PCI coordinator, who's usually a CCU nurse, to say, we've got this patient or whatever. And then they'll call the A&E coordinator and tell them as well, usually that's what happens. And then this A&E consultant decided to, like, fast bleep me to A&E, even though the patient isn't even in the hospital. And then so I, like, get down to A&E because I obviously don't know what they fast bleep me about. And he's like, can you tell me about this patient that's coming in? I'm like, bro. Oh, well, I'm going to have like third hand knowledge, much like. Yeah, literally, I, I'm not with them on the helicopter right now, yeah, standing in front I, of you. Then, yeah, you know you, yeah, literally, I was like, yeah, this situation is okay. I'm sure, we, well, what we're going to do? And I'm like, I don't think you're going to be doing anything, mate. I don't think that you're going to stop with you guys. Yeah. Why did I? Why did I? Need why are to you out? involved? Yeah. Why? Why? But yes, I fast bleeping. And sometimes I'm a bit like, yeah. I think that the people doing the fast bleeping, I think you should only be allowed to fast bleep if you can be fast bleeped back. Because if you don't know what the fast bleep pain is, then you shouldn't be fast. No, don't, yeah. really, but... no, totally. And maybe you should have a quota of fast bleeps per year that you're allowed I think to so. use. Yeah. Might Strikes. Get, totally. It might get to December <laughs> and you've not used one of your 20 uh, fast bleeps. Yeah, so you so just you use three in one shift. Yeah, you just fast bleep through <laughs> 19 times, like in an hour. Oh, God. oh that's it's worse. Good cardio. No. It's good cardio. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Okay. Let's stick to how it is. Let's just stick to how it is. I'll just go there and. Yeah. I guess, though, that. Fast bleeping didn't make it on this list about why junior doctors are leaving. Um, but there was no. a post again. It should by, be. 
It should be Johnny Gookian. This is slowly turning into the Johnny Gookian tribute Gookian episode show, yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so Johnny tweeted a graph about reasons for why doctors left the profession in 2022. And yeah, getting fast bleep is not on there. But the main reason was no reason given. So we'll ignore that one. Um, that could have been the reason for the, fo- the fast bleep. It could, could have be been, it. actually. That was a quotation oh, taken directly from whoever was fast bleep. Yeah. But yeah, so it, the main reason was wanting to practice abroad. And then the other most popular reasons are retirement. Obviously, you have to be retirement. the right age, I guess. You can't retire at 28, but you never know. Mm-hmm. Wanting to live abroad. Wow, quite a lot of people required because of the revalidation requirements, which I totally get that because I hate ARCP in appraisal season. Family reasons, new career opportunity. These are all in order, by the way. Burnout or stress, taking a break, health reasons, (laughs) childcare. And it's interesting. Other things on there that that have made the cut are things like visa issues, lack of flexible working, caring responsibilities, bullying, harassment. And like all those things are just sad. That is oh. a significant proportion of reasons why people oh, are look, leaving this profession. Unhappy, unhappy with location of job. Yeah. Gosh, yeah, sad, isn't it? I don't know really any other that. profession that is like this. I really don't. Like I know this. So people often try to make it into a competition and they're like, oh, doctors earn this or whatever. No, besides that, how many other professions do you know of where you are forced to work and live somewhere where you've never had any intention of working the fact that you're like discriminated for having care responsibilities and and health needs yourself and I know that happens everywhere but I just feel like I should expect more that's in a caring profession that should be healthcare yeah even if you're the problem with that though is it's appealing to people's appealing to people's kind of sympathy being like oh like it's a caring profession or amongst ourselves but then if you think about it even in the financial sense like how much effort and time money it takes to train a doctor and then get a point and then it, it just makes sense to try and sustain that workforce when you know that retention is poor and people aren't and there are gaps and stuff surely yeah. that even from that kind of small selfish perspective it makes sense to try and retain yeah, people totally it was part of that kind of i think it's part of that survey johnny had done a few tweets but another one that was interesting is that he he mentioned the propulsion of licensed doctors by gender and year for surgery as per the GMC. And so he was, he, he cut in this chart, which I'll have to describe for you using words, but it's obviously a diagram. So I'll just use words now, the following words. So he did charts from 2012 up to 2022. I don't know why I talk this way. And literally the kind of balance between males and females, it's like overwhelming. Unsurprisingly in surgery, it's overwhelmingly male and much, much less than 50% of but I guess, um, though, like surprising, are. even though I knew that kind of from just anecdotal experience and knowing that surgery is more male dominated, I think I was still surprised at the difference in proportion between all those people who go to medical school and those who end up in yeah. surgery. Like it's minuscule. And, and I'm looking at the graph and over the 10 years, like the female proportion is, is going up, but it's so slight, like it's so slow. Yeah. And I just think. Compared to looking at How the charts take. for, yeah. yeah, we're female in Scotland is well, yeah. yeah, 60%. In Northern Ireland, it's nearly it's over 70%. So everywhere, yeah. over half of medical students are female, but yet like less than 10% of surgeons. It's crazy. Yeah. So that kind of, that shows that the balance, that the kind of, is so much in the opposite mm. direction that it's just like, even statistically, you think, like yeah. during 
throwing kind of stones at doctors, you're much more likely to hit kind of women. Yet somehow we're still not, they're not still not getting mm. into surgery. So do you think it's just because it's still surgery, it's still like a perception problem? What, what's happening? Yeah, I guess so. I think it's hard to change culture and stereotypes. And I think those culture and stereotypes exist for a reason because it's, you can't, enact change when you're going into that and then people are leaving the profession maybe because of sexual harassment and things or just they see the vibe and it is that it's so heavily male dominated and like an old boy old boys club and again I'm just generalizing but the stereotype does exist for a reason that then people are just like so it's not the fact that women can't do it it's the fact that maybe women just don't want to put themselves in that position and they just think oh I don't want to work with people like that or that's not the life for me and it's just perpetuated by the culture that's already there. So without kind of properly breaking that down, it just continues. But then how would you break it down? You break it down by getting more women in, but they don't go into it. But because of the, it's just that vicious kind of cycle, I think. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about why people go into specialties. And there was a couple of tweets this week about the intensive care medicine, like scoring matrix for higher ICM kind of training yeah. and reg posts and Again, I don't know what the proportions of male and females are there, but people were commenting on what you would get points for. and Lots of people thinking that they wouldn't even score enough points to get an interview and stuff. And there was there was one thing that um, Eva, Eva Abbey uh, commented, who I believe is an ICM consultant, about getting points for like your educational supervisor being complimentary about you. And apparently that's like the same amount of points you can get from doing a PhD. And I guess... Is that going into that like favoritism side of things then? Does, do people just foster the people that they, you know, like themselves who want to go into the specialty? So, for example, if it's like male people, oh, like are they more com yeah. yeah, are they more comp complimentary to the male trainees that want to go in? And then does that perpetuate it? I don't know. That probably happens already, though, if you think about yeah, true. Because the things that we give them scores for, they, because people are much more likely to help people who remind them of themselves or whatever. And so mm. they're more likely to be offered opportunities like maybe papers or being involved in those things. And perhaps, and we know that, say, for example, in like nursing, even though like men make up such a small proportion of nurses, they're much more likely to be promoted early yeah. to leadership positions. And so we know that happens. It's not like the kind of, the cards are stacked against, they're stacked in favor mm. of men already. About like affirmative action or something along those lines where kind of the, they must recruit a certain number of women or, and I think diversity in those positions. I think the only way to really shake it up is by ring fencing jobs, I think, because I don't Knock think... Knock it down and start again. Yeah, because I don't think it's not because they're not as good as men. It's not that. Totally. It's not that they. I just. I, what would the problem with that be? It's not like the system so far has been. Yeah, it's I an think interesting. That's what we should do, but yeah, a bit controversial. And then the, so there's the next one was a tweet from Anahita that said. So she was quoting someone who said they should probably start an interview station for medical school where you're asked to collect a series of clinical equipment for a basic clinical procedure from a messy unknown store cupboard. And that's a, that's a very accurate Dusky station, I think. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, very yeah, accurate. So, Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, I think the times that I remember doing that, especially, I always, it's always like the weird thing. It's always the kind of one thing that, like, like for a procedure, it's usually like the ultrasound probe cover, or I don't know. It's usually just like one like odd thing. So Anahita said, "But where's the gauze?" 
It's, it's always one like, mundane bit. And yeah. none of the stacker rooms are like ever the same in each hospital and yeah. uh, each ward, sorry. And then you think you know where something is, but then it's yeah. just a random one that you found. And then when you go back the next day because you need it again, it's gone. And yeah. I remember it was like when I was on, you're on call for medicine or something and you ask to get cannulated patients and it's, I've never worked in this part of A&E before and suddenly you don't know where anything is and I feel like you're wandering around aimlessly carrying one of those blue trays just yeah. looking for like yeah, equipment. Exactly. But yeah, yeah, kind of addressing. Yeah. This is it, yeah. And if it's that's the thing, and it's it's so time consuming. And I remember yeah. one time looking for an NG tube in A and E, and just and nobody could help me. I was in this room that was like so high ceilings and full of stackers, and I just was like, felt like I was in this crazy tunnel. And I was like, I just wanted an NG tube. I don't care what size. And <laughs> it was like, I felt like I was on crystal maze in the end, dragging all the drawers open and throwing them yeah, back. Yeah. And I was like, where's the crystal? I'm gonna get. Where's the crystal? <laughs> but yeah, it's yeah, just. Time. It's, I feel like that is a very accurate OSCE station because it's, this is what you're going to spend a large proportion of FY1 doing, just looking for stuff. Or the so keys. Good, good like a magpie. Yeah, oh, when yeah. Some, you're keys. looking for a local and they're like, oh, it's in the cupboard, but it's locked. And then they throw you a bunch of keys on an NHS lanyard. Oh, and there's about 30 true, keys yeah. and they all look the same. That's so but, funny, yeah. Yeah, I'm, like, oh, I'm not giving local then. I'm not being kind. <laughs> <laughs> so it did make me think when you're talking about cannulas, and I never remember the name for the, the little goober that goes on the end. What do you call the little thing that you connect to the I call it the to? octopus. Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. But people don't it's, I think it's a, it. is it a connector or an ex- extension <laughs> set? Sounds extension weird, extension set. set. Yeah. I just call it the octopus thing, Yeah. Although different. I've never seen one with eight lumens, actually. I think at the most I've seen is two yeah. or three. <laughs> Maybe we should paint one. That'd be amazing. Yeah. A tripetus? <laughs> a duplicitus? Go, patented, patent pending. Nice, good, good. The next tweet was something quite close to my heart because I still haven't done it when you job. Oh, God. Mandatory training yes. is a question on, oh, God. Dr. Gordon Caldwell, he tweeted saying, NHS mandatory training under the spotlight. I've been arguing for over a decade that it's worse than a waste of time. We learn to cheat. We learn nothing useful. It antagonizes us against management. It takes time away from doing patient care. And he's talking, of course, about mandatory training, which you have to, which irritatingly you also have to redo every period of time. Yeah. And it, well, the thing that really annoys me, well, there are a few, but one's prevent training. I'm like, oh that's, gosh, that is, it's that just so racist in itself. And the fact that exactly. we're and does it to help do anyone? that. Exactly. Does it no. help anyone? I don't know. Je refuse oh, to believe that it does. Yeah, Je refuse. Like, well, and so someone obviously, very obviously replied saying, the only reason we do it is because of liability, isn't it? So, so the yeah. hospitals can say that they spe- did yeah, the inspection and stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's totally pathetic. And that's the thing, it's never interesting. I think I spoke before about one that was telling me like where the space bar was and a bloody keyboard. And I just thought, oh, I've yeah. made it this far. I'm in big trouble if I don't know. But it does, it's all, like I said, it just all, it's, none of it feels remotely helpful. Even the fire safety ones, which I feel like could be quite helpful. I still don't know where things are or what extinguishers to use, but I do know that I just can't warm my butter sachets on top of the toaster because if the file falls in, then it's game oh, over. God. But probably yeah, quite important. Yeah. But there's, uh, there's other fire safety stuff that I would like to learn. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So this next tweet was an interesting one because it's from an account that's usually on the same page, uh, Dr. Yeah. Womersley. And she uh, quote tweeted a picture that said, so it's one of those keep calm memes, which are terrible. I think they are terrible. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Keep calm and check his balls was the meme. And it goes, so get to know his what, balls. Just, check just them. Anyone, anyone's balls, the Russian? Yeah, or? anyone's. Just whoever's just standing go- next to you. 
Yeah. Just make sure you warm your hands first. They oh, get okay. to know his balls. Check him monthly. And if you notice a change, send him to his GP immediately. Testicular cancer has a 98% cure rate. And the sooner it's spotted, the more effective treatment is. And so she has quoted this saying, I don't remember a public health campaign that asked heterosexual men to look out for their partners' emerging cancer. Patient empowerment is great, but partner responsibility is not. Now, I disagreed with this. But what? Oh, she replied to me. I didn't even remember. I didn't Rude. Remember. I didn't reply. Whoops. It's silly me. There was a uh, prevent cancer campaign which encouraged partners to check their partner's breast. And I think my sentiment was, I get it. Her, um, I guess the point is that certainly women in the household women in relationships even the fact that i said household just shows my privilege women in relationships they often have to do their heavy lifting in terms of a lot of things including quite the stereotype of also looking out for their partner's health and this is probably one of those other things that would appear to be pandering to that but then we can see that i don't know i just think but also um, i think well, like it's not the thing is it's not put in i feel like it's not I wonder if that's been misinterpreted somewhat because to me, reading that poster doesn't signal to me that my checking my partner's testicles for cancer is solely my responsibility. It's saying to me, oh, if you're going to be down in that area anyway, just feel it kind of thing. And and I think, so what if you've seen that poster? Like it's not telling you to take ownership of that. Like your partner is still a responsible individual with testicles who can check them themselves, but also... Like, surely the more people know about these things, the more people that check, and the more people that are going to be captured in terms of positive finding. And I just think, you know, maybe, like, I can just see in my mind's eye this man being like, oh, I know you checked them last night, but can you check them again? And I was just sitting there <laughs> enjoying it. But no, I just, but yeah. yeah, I just think, like, it's not, like, it's not, I don't feel like it's not unfairly putting responsibility sure. on anyone. Same And same as the breast one. Like, if you're in that mm. area and you're feeling things, and it's just, awareness i think is there's not nothing yeah, wrong you can like never have enough awareness about, about cancer yeah exactly yeah. that i think that's it like, isn't it and you're right not that's everything has to word. be like homophobic or not sorry not homophobic yeah like sexist and stuff like it doesn't yeah. everything doesn't have to be made that way like you can just read that and think oh it's just increasing awareness and not think yeah. oh it's putting more onus on women and yeah yeah i think you're right and the thing is the awareness thing because often People just don't really think about it so much and as in cancers in affecting young people. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think that's like an important message in there. And I think it's a difficult one to get right, especially in the UK, I think, where we're inherently prudent and anything yes. that suggests that kind of thing makes you think of like, sexual encounters and whatever. But Carrie, I, I have bottles of sun cream in my car and that's primarily because I know that I'll need to remind Joe and the kids to have some because they have better mm. skin than me. And it's something that I think is important. And you just, I think it is important to remind your loved ones because you want them to be around. I think that was yeah. my reply. Exactly. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry for not, Kate, to not replying to that. I just obviously didn't see it. I've obviously, my attention span had moved on. <laughs> Moving on. Rachel yeah. Clark, she has said, when the UK biobank was set up in 2006, the public was promised their sensitive health data would never be sold to insurance companies. Full stop. That was a lie. Volunteers' data is being sold to private health insurers for profit. A scandalous betrayal of trust. And she is quoting the Observer that said that this private UK health data had been donated for medical research and that was shared with insurance companies. 
So basically they're saying the Tories lied about something. Shock horror. But I think like, like it's strange, isn't it? Because like you think of donating something for medical research, you think of donating your body to science and being a cadaver and stuff. But then, but now it's like other people just donating all our data on our behalf. And I recently yeah. got a letter about a new study. I think it's again, a new national thing called, I think it's Our Future Health. And it was just saying, we invite you to take part in this study. You just have to be 18 or older. And I assume, I think they've recruited like, the millionth patient now. And the whole thing is you answer this whole questionnaire about all sorts of different things, physical and mental health wise. And then you get invited to go to a blood test. They check your cholesterol and a few other things and the height and weight. And you, obviously you, don't, you only get the results if there's something concerning, but it's all part of this just research and whatever they're looking at. I'm sure there'll be lots of different things. But I've just seen a few people on Twitter who'd also received that letter. And they just, I think they were just suitably cynical and skeptical because they were like, actually, that's quite a lot of data that I'm now handing. And then you see stuff like this and you just can't guarantee that it's not going to yeah. find its way in the wrong hands. Right. And yet it might not be traced back to you personally, but it's it's the principle of it, I think. it's I didn't give you yeah. that data about me. That's really quite invasive for no re for that any other reason. Purpose. I think it's good. I think there is a lot of cynicism and a lot of bit of scepticism around now. It's not a bad thing and it's not unfounded either. No, I mean, we've given up so many of our rights anyway in terms of surveillance and stuff. Like, I think a lot of stuff happened with COVID and I think a lot of things changed background where we have given up a lot of our rights for data and stuff. It's like there are a few bills that were passed that could be described as nefarious best by the Tories that involves like data sharing and stuff. It's quite scary. So I think people are, are right to feel hesitant. The sad thing is, is that it doesn't, it does under, undermine actual research. Yeah. That's just, that is the fault of these people who simply cannot be trusted and they haven't behaved in yeah. a way that, you know, It's like spoiling it, isn't it? Because it just, this is going to mean that less and less people engage with stuff out to just sheer yeah. panic that where's my data going to end up kind of thing. Yeah. Classic breeze. In it, the worst. Do you want to introduce the tweet from the Embarker? Yeah, so I feel like Liam always He's has a good tweet about, about general practice. Hey, Liam Barker, eh? Oh, that's probably just more generic <laughs> northern. Um, dear GP, please treat this patient for a confirmed urine infection. We've elected not to inform you of the organism, all the sensitivities. We've also provided zero contact details so you cannot get in touch with us when you're pissed off at this being dumped with you. Hugs. So there you go. That, thanks, thanks, Liam, for being on the for being on the podcast with us today. <laughs> but no idea it, if he sounds it. like that. But no, this is such a GP dump. There's loads of stuff like this where like, I can just see this letter now that would have come from an unknown clinic in St. Elsewhere of just, oh, yeah, we think they've got a UTI, please treat. And it's okay, great, but where's the rest of the information? And it's, everyone can write a prescription and it's that thing, isn't it? Of, yeah, it's just typical. Oh, the GP will sort it. Go and see a GP. But there was one I as just... well. That, there was a couple of, I think there was a couple of tweets uh, sorry to interrupt, but this reminded me because I think there was uh, something about Wes Streeting this month, say, uh, sorry, this week, saying about, again, implying that if you couldn't get to see a GP, then go and see, go to A&E. And someone said, Wes Streeting saying patients can't get GP appointments and like, they cost 40 quid and they end up going to A&E and that costs 360. And it's like, how does he think that's worth the same or not? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm sorry, I went off on a bit of a tangent there, but that just reminded me because I think last week we were speaking about how all these treatment algorithms always end with, oh, if concerned, go to A&E. And it's A&E, you're like, no. 
we can't literally take any more. And there was another tweet this week about how emergency medicine seems to like fill in the gaps. And I guess it must yeah. feel like that when something maybe can't be managed in the community and then specialists it's, don't want to take ownership. Theory. Yeah. And it's that in between period where they just fill in what's not like what's not there. And I think, you know, you can see mm. like that letter that Liam received about a patient. If that's not yeah. acted on, you can then see maybe how even that ends up going to A&E because it's that in between yeah. of I need to see someone, but I can't get an appointment. And it's just messy. It's not good for the patients. Yeah. It's not good for your bloody being either. It's soul destroying. No, it's not nice to operate in that kind of system as well because everyone feels stressed about it as well because you appreciate yeah. that it's... And then, you, and then the, the final person for the buck has to stop with me. Like, that's not an unpleasant way to feel. Because who in A&E like, signed up for that? GP yeah, exactly. Exactly, um, yeah. So this, per- this person replied, though, which is interesting, which said, Dear gynecologist, or the gynecologist <laughs> weighing in, please see this 84-year-old with two-week waits with postmenopausal leaving, spotting after PU over in. He had a telephone consultation, so I have no idea if it's PVPR. She has her uterus, so hey, or at least she did, till she had a hysterectomy 30 years ago. This is very specific. Swings and roundabouts, mm. my friend. And then he replies, like, what Liam else? said, I think it goes against GMC guidance not to action your own results. There's clear rules about this. Whilst I understand where you're coming from, I'm not sure that this is the same thing. And I don't appreciate the swipe you've decided to take against primary care here. And then the gynecologist has come back with no swipe intended. What did they intend? You just Simply making a point. Both ways. Maybe don't give it out if you can't take it back. So is it a swipe if it's about... I don't know. If, if you change your mind well, after and was like, oh, actually, I'm just going to gaslight you instead. But no, yeah, this yeah. happens when I was in my obs and gynae rotation. So many of the gynecologists used to bitch to me about how, oh, GPs just send everything in as two-week wait because the waiting list for general gynae is too long. It's really inappropriate. You never see patients. You never examine them. And I'm just like, actually, I resent that. And yeah, there are some people that might go straight to two-week wait, refer to speaking to the GP on the phone. And that's fine because your GP then delaying things by making another appointment to see you face-to-face, which may or not add anything to the referral anyway. If it's postmenopausal bleeding coming from the vagina, then it's going to have to be two-week wait. So it's that kind of like, essentially, he's having a go and saying, oh, the GPs just send everything two-week wait to get people seen. And as Liam says, that is definitely not the same thing. Um. That was literally what was tip for tat, wasn't it? That's what they're going yeah. for. And then to be like, why well, wasn't? Yeah. What was it then, mate? No, but you, you really were. Know? Like, can you not? Do you not understand that all of us can see this interaction as well? Yeah. And it's yeah. this is public, yeah. yeah. So this, I linked this tweet, which has been quite sad. I hope it's been sorted out. So there's a tweet from Alexandra Elaine Adams. So she's, so I kind of, I'm sure I came across her account in a different way, maybe from TikTok or something. She, yeah, his first deafblind medical student. She used to be a GB athlete and she's done a number of different, I think, TED Talks and stuff. I think maybe that's where I've seen. Poor thing. She, yeah, she was quite big on Instagram, I think, as well, for this oh, reason, for being the, the first deafblind medic. Yeah, and so she said, today I experienced discrimination and ableism from my medical school, resulting in me being denied the chance to sit my exam or because I turned up to the exam in a wheelchair. I never come on here anymore, often silenced as an undergrad. I'm tired, angry, and devastated. For context, I'm an inpatient, but got the thumbs up to do today's exam on daily. I've done this in previous exams too. My conditions mean frequent hospital stays come part of it. Due to EDS, I often weaken and flares. My wheelchair equals independence. That's why I brought it today to today's exam. Although the med school is aware 
I was doing today's exam whilst an inpatient, they, when they saw me in the wheelchair, they immediately deemed me too unwell, too unwell to sit at a computer for a few hours just because I was in a wheelchair. They said they needed me well, and this is my, but this is my well. As a person with chronic illness whose well baseline is no different to last week, last month, last year, yet the med school seemed to think you have to be too sick to use a wheelchair. Howled tears in a corner for three hours while senior staff who'd never met me before decided to stop me sitting my exam based on one piece of info they were given that I turned up in a wheelchair. I feel discriminated against, my lifelong stable condition, totally misunderstood. I knew I'd face walls as a medical student, but a chronic illness too. Today ended in me not doing an exam that I was well enough to do, with no option but to resit at a later date, a date that has no guarantee I won't be in hospital or wheelchair again, because this is my life. Yeah, so I think this is my old medical school, actually. I'm sure she goes mm. to my old mm. medical school. And I always remember reading her story and be, being aware of her story and thinking, wow, this is incredible. And how I thought, so she has posted elsewhere, so I may as well say, it. I think I'm sure it was Cardiff Uni. And, and I felt really proud about Cardiff Uni. And I thought, wow, you're really making things accessible. And this lady, like you say, she says, this, I'm the first to do what I do, given that I'm deaf and blind. And then it's like they've just undone all that by yeah. just, like she says, seeing her wheelchair and not really seeing her as a person, but just seeing the wheelchair. And it's they're acting on their own discomfort that, oh, we can't guarantee that you're not going to come back and sue us if we let you do this exam. That's what it feels like. They were just being too... It wasn't to do with her well-being or her welfare at all. Like they've said, oh, we just want to make sure that you're well. It was more to do with their discomfort of being faced with a disabled medical student and thinking, I'm just not even wanting to understand or learn more about what's going on for her and just saying a blanket no. And she says she's only eight months left from, she's only eight months from graduating. And now that's like less possible that the fact that she can't do this exam at this point in time. And I've been dipping in and out of her story over the years. And I know she was like, in, she was in hospital for months earlier this year, months and months. And I just yeah. think to go through all that and to be still doing what she's able to do and, and wanting to sit exams and stuff and then for it all to be thrown back like that, it must be devastating for her. Devastating. Yeah. If it gets a while soon, forward to see an update that's positive. Yeah, I hope it's a positive one. Definitely. So then Zach, Ferguson, he did a tweet that he did a tweet. He tweeted saying, He's Going listen full time for childcare. Did a pre going listen full time for childcare is brilliant. But it definitely feels like working 140% of the time for 60% of the salary. And that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because less than full time isn't actually that much less than four year. Yeah, and like some for... some some less than full time hours. So if you're 80% less than full time, sometimes right. that still amounts to no, like a normal full-time job for other people. So 35 or 37 and a half hours is full-time for maybe kind of other professions and other jobs. But for us, it's really not. But then you're getting quite, you're getting a huge decrease in pay because then that's classed as like part-time. But I yeah. guess what he's saying is like when you've got a, a young child at home, like there is yeah. no, there is nothing in between. Yes, you're only in work for part of that time. But when you're at home, you're also working hard as well. Like it's not yeah. all fun and games, I guess, is it? No. He needs to be paid more, doesn't he? He needs to, Just, he, yeah, he needs to get he, like a blue. He, he needs to get a blue. He's so talented, man. Account. Like he's so talented. Yeah, I feel like he should like so... Adam Kay is like he's just now this world famous screenwriter and author. I feel yeah, like he's gonna be the next it. one of those, but for like memes and just hilarious things. Like, yeah. yeah. He's destined for big things, our friend. He is. This is the big thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, okay. 
Yeah, no, I won't go there. I'm not making any okay. heist jokes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, gosh. I think, yeah, whilst Sarusha's having a moment and Sorry. getting resuscitated over there. But no, I, I, what I was going to bring up about quite a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk every week about allied health professional professions and kind yeah. of PAs and all this kind of jazz. And I believe there was, there was a, a tweet from, I think it was from Prof Melville, who's quite high up in the GMC. And Kind of was concerned that kind of all this discourse and stuff that's going on social media at the moment and also in the mainstream media I've noticed as well about PAs mainly um, as concerned that this is being weaponized and, and he's worried about how this is impacting on these professions and it's I think people got quite upset because there was none of that acknowledgement of, so even the GMC are now saying in I guess people are insinuating in a roundabout way that we don't actually care about how this is all affecting junior doctors and how they feel like they're not getting the opportunities to train. He's just concerned about the people that doctors are raising concerns about. And I think that just rattled quite a few people yeah. this week because I think you expect your own regulator to have your back if people are raising like genuine concerns about about MAPs and things. But yeah. I guess it doesn't feel like that when they're saying like, oh, we don't really care how this affects you lot, but we care about the PAs and, and stuff like that. Yeah, it just—it's just—they're not managing the situation well at all, are they? They just no, and it doesn't. And yeah, it doesn't feel like it's. But that's a very good point. Actually, they're just pissing everyone off because I think we've mentioned before there is some serious, like, kind of concerns and questions and debate to be had amongst all of this. But we can't have it because it always gets too fraught and too like just too much of an argument. It's crazy. It's interesting to see you linked a tweet from a solicitor because they're obviously very interested in this. <laughs> and I have heard people say that before because um, a lot of hospitals, I'm not sure if they've necessarily considered the legislation or how protected people are in having, mm. having say, physicians, associates, seeing patients and whether, if they're acting in a... Are they autonomous or not? You get, there, are, there, there are links to certain accounts that are suggesting that they're autonomous. But under some guidance, does that mean that the consultants are taking responsibility? Are they going to take the heat? And are, are they happy with that? Are they happy with the amount of responsibility that they're now carrying? And are they, is that true? Is that acceptable? Is that indirect guidance and supervision? Is that still an acceptable level of supervision from a legal standpoint? Just, I think we're in a slightly weird territory and so it's interesting Absolutely. to see solicitors tweet about it and say, yeah. so they'll say that me and my colleagues are rubbing our hands together at this, but trust me, we aren't. We're also scared about what this means for patient safety. Yeah. And I think, and that's it, isn't it? And I think it's, it is, there's a lot of grayness here. And I think one way at which kind of some, the profession is trying to make things a bit more clear for patients or people accessing healthcare is this kind of, I feel like they're trying to get a campaign going because I keep seeing people using the hashtag, it's okay to ask. And I thought that was about like mental health, first of all, but I'm realizing people now meaning it in terms of if you're a patient, you should be able to ask the role or the name of the person who kind of you are seeing. And there was a kind of tweet by Caitlin, who's a PA, who said she brought this up and said 45% of appointments are with a variety of healthcare professionals that are not just GPs. So you're talking about AMPs, physios, PAs. And it, she's saying that it feels quite insulting actually to, to ask that and I guess imply that maybe you're not happy with certain professions seeing you because you might deem them as, as not good enough. But then there was a GP, Dr. Lucy Jane Davis, who actually then 
I don't know if this was related or not, but I saw them at similar times on the timeline and she was recounting her story about how she was thinking it's okay to ask and asking in that context of hospital roles and how it really didn't go that well. And she said, she says, I got major kickback. I still don't really know what the, the chap who saw me actually was. We can't put this, this responsibility onto patients. It's my responsibility to tell you my name and I'm a GP. I try to do that every time and patients shouldn't need to ask. It should be the same standard for all providing health care. And I think that's what people are saying because some people will say oh, I'm part of the medical team and not be forthcoming with the fact that they're a PA or things like that. And I know the implications of that are huge and that's just more greyness in this kind of thing mm. of who are they? What, who are we? What are we doing supervising? It's, it is just a bit of a mess at the minute and I feel bad for both sides, definitely. I guess, to to be fair to her, she was also writing in response to a quote tweet of this kind of graphic that said, who do you trust to look after your family? And it was framed in that way. So they'd put it yeah, as that's, GP that's versus loaded, sister. that's loaded, isn't sister. it? That is totally it's loaded. Like GP, medically qualified doctor, minimum 10 years medical training, passed rigorous Royal College exams. And then it was framed next to a physician's associate, not a doctor in capitals, unaccredited two-year degree unregulated and not allowed to prescribe medications and then the hashtag is restore gp hashtag it's okay to... i guess if you're responding to that like i can see i, I feel yeah like for it to be framed in that way of who do you trust gp is obviously trustworthy and then implies that everyone else isn't that is quite that's quite vindictive isn't yeah. it yeah yeah but um, yeah, it's just, I think it's just, it's getting, yeah, I feel every time we bring it up about PAs and stuff, I just, it always just leaves such a sour taste in my mouth. And I, and it's not because I'm against PAs, but I just feel like we've been talking about this kind of stuff for weeks and the cycle just keeps cycling on yeah. social media. It's just ugly. It is because it's not, it's no one's fault, but we're not getting anywhere with it. And I feel like yeah. the GMC and the government are not create, make it, it doesn't feel like they're making much effort to define the scope no. and this stuff just keeps going on and on. I'm like, I'm sure we'll, we'll still yeah. be doing this podcast in years to come, I hope. And we'll, we'll still, still be, be having this, like, same conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think the thing is that until we have clear leadership on the issue, like proper, not like mealy mouth, oh, we like, we want everyone to be happy. But they're not like yeah. delineating, like proper, like, this roles. Is it. People. Yeah, it's actually, like that, yeah, make it clear. Yeah. And until then, I think it's going to be, and people will say yeah. what they say. And talk, talking yes. about talking about having decent leadership, though, there were so many changes in the Tory government this week, wasn't it? Obviously not to oh, dwell yeah. on this kind of too long, but I just remember there was a day this week where I just kept seeing breaking news come out. Oh, Browerman's been sacked. Then it was like, yeah. now there's a minister for common sense, which I thought was a joke. And then so I realised it wasn't actually an article on The Onion. This was actually a genuine BBC And like, it's McVeigh as well. Yeah, and it wasn't even, so yeah, it wasn't even parody. And like how David Cameron, who's not even an MP anymore, has now been made foreign mm -hmm. secretary. And yeah, talk about having poor leadership. Like yeah. when it's like that at the top, we've got no chance yeah, in trying exactly. to define scope. And it's porky pies. Exactly. But yeah, was yeah. it now the fifth minister of health? Fifth, fifth, God, God, sorry, I'm off, off me tits on Coco de Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this now like the fifth health secretary in the space of two years? Like. Yeah, it's, it's we were talking there beforehand times. because who is it that said? So I think I it was Newdor who said that Bella, oh, no. yeah, yeah, yeah who said a lot of these, a lot of the none of those MPs 
have any real expertise in healthcare. And then, yeah, um, and all of a sudden was, they're in charge of healthcare. And they're in charge, and are they? They go, oh, yes, well, well, I'm meeting people on the ground, and they go and do these photo ops, shaking the chief exec's hand, and just wasting people's time on the ward. And it just is. They're just shocking. They're just terrible, aren't they? And it made me think about. So there's also the ongoing inquiry that's going, or like at least the release of statements from Valence about the the response of Boris Johnson to COVID and how just woefully, embarrassingly inept he was and how you just have to, even at the time it was ridiculous, like Rishi Sunak's eat out to help out on how people could correlate that with increases in COVID rates and deaths thereof. And they're saying about how Boris Johnson was like visibly and obviously confused by the statistics and the advice given by, he just did not have he just did not have the faculties oh. about him to comprehend or deal with any of that stuff. And it just makes you wonder, like, you know, sh- shouldn't we be aspiring to better from our politicians? And, I, and yeah, I know that you know, some of them have gone to like great schools and stuff. But like Boris Johnson, he was like, fired as a journalist and he did a classics degree. Like, what the hell was he doing? Yeah. Making like important decisions to do with the COVID response and stuff. Like, what the yeah. hell? He shouldn't have been allowed anywhere near that. Totally. And I don't know why this phrase comes to mind, but it's just, I feel like the phrase is, you can't polish a turd. And it's obviously that's to do more with appearance. But I feel like in this case, with him, it's like he's come from this great wealth. He's come, he's gone and had this amazing education and studying the classics and is meant to be one of the, maybe the more well to do people amongst this country or whatever. But still, just cannot get these things right. I'm not saying it's an easy job, but you should expect a lot more from someone of his like background when and it came to the global pandemic. To comprehend the difference between like absolute risk reduction and relative risk reduction. It's like oh. something like you do in A-level biology. It's just, it, it's just ridiculous. And, it, it's, um, but it's that, it's, it must be that air of just thinking again that he's either more important than that, that he doesn't need to know it or just thinking like that's not important for him enough to make effort to go and understand it and stuff and and even if you don't understand it you'll of course have advisors who either will try and explain it to you or help you make those decisions and you need to listen to them as well yeah but you're still above that and you're not interested it's really derogatory and it's really insulting to the literally the whole of the uk that we have to have that yeah and the thing is that's fine i think when things are fine that those decisions don't make a difference at all and they have no bearing on you know, if it's about making the rich richer or whatever. I think most people seem to be happy to vote for the Tories for that kind of stuff. But at that yeah. time when it's like life and death, people died. And uh, I just Yeah, I literally I it was that yeah. that was the spectrum, wasn't it? It was as serious as whether you lived or there's no defending that. But I think that is a lot of medical doom and gloom. Should we go on to a few yeah. things that are maybe the less oh, medical part? I feel like this is the and finally bit of the podcast, isn't it? We yeah. talk about random stuff that's caught our eye. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we should get Layla's thing in that you launched. Read that out. That was nice. Oh, yeah, that was really nice. So I like this. So Layla, was, she posted a, a, a picture of a line from the Oxford Handbook, I think it was, yeah. where it looks like the Oxford Handbook. But she says this is a passage that she, sh- that she thinks of quite often. And it says, you may think that you are kind and wise or clumsy and inadequate. And it takes our patience to disabuse us of these illusions and to show us that some days we are good and some days we are bad thanks to our patients we never stay the same thought that was quite wholesome and it's like a good thing to to be reminded of actually that kind of no matter what you think about yourself whether you think that you're good or bad 
it's the patients that actually I feel like, yeah, we are constantly learning from them and they often will prove us wrong or prove us right, I guess. It's quite a nice way to, to think about things. She did say, I mean, she goes on to say the next part is just as moving. I do this, the next book that really, I think really rings true. After practicing medicine for a few decades, our minds become populated by the ghosts of former patients, beckoning us, warning us, reminding us that things of the things that we cannot control and the ideals to which we aspire. And I definitely do have a few patients that I still think of. Oh, totally. There's there's certain things that you remember that just changes your practice forever. Mm. There's even patients that have changed my outlook on the world and healthcare and just things in general have changed because of those kind of often heartbreaking scenarios or patients that you've been involved with. And I think one of them for me, it was when I was on call one Christmas and it was a young lad who, this was in the news and everything afterwards, so this is not like breaking confidentiality or anything, but it was a young lad who who got punched on a Christmas night out and it was just devastating. And I remember taking him to theatre that night to, to try and save his life, essentially. And having just gone out for Christmas night out and then ended up like this. And it's just changed my view completely on go just taking for granted of like just going out for a night out and expecting and your family expecting you to come home safe and, and not being one then on a longer term basis because having then re- needed a lot of rehab kind of in the local newspapers about how the devastation that this caused to his life and how he couldn't live independent anymore and just thinking like that just sticks with you and the way One that you event yeah here. and the way that how you speak to relatives how you speak to families like I feel like even that changed after I, I dealt with this case and those are the people it's like it, they become like a little encyclopedia I feel like in your head and either pushes you to do something more of the same or pushes you to change something and you do it differently forevermore. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite profound. Sad. Yeah, gosh, <laughs> quite yeah. profound. Just a little profound. Um, yeah, nice. So you linked a tweet that you say, I do this all the time. Is this, you do this all the time, actually. Do you want to, tell, do. Do you want to read the tweet? And I try so hard not to like actually do this on the podcast because it would piss me off if I hear it. Yeah. No, I don't think you do that. We have this phrase, I guess, we all have phrases in our life that we repeat a lot. And for me, it's definitely, this is one of them. So this was a tweet by Twinkling Tinsel Tara. Anyone else say, does that make sense? Despite knowing it clearly did. And it was actually an insightful and well thought out sentence. I feel like I add that on to so many things or whatever. If if that makes sense, does that make sense? And yeah, of course it it will. Yeah, I do. it literally comes out of my mouth before I even realise that I've put the synapses and signals together to actually say that those words. Isn't it good to check, isn't it? It's not harmful to ask. I guess it, it is good to check, but when you say it after every sentence, it's less, it becomes more of an annoyance then. It's, yes, I'll tell you if it did. But yeah, it's as if I'm speaking a different language or something and they're like, no, I perfectly understood what oh, you said. I also but, speak yeah. English too. Yeah, for yeah, it's that fear of being misunderstood, but also that must be so rare that I really don't need to say, does that make sense after everything? Yeah. <laughs> you linked another one that was funny. At the chemist and there's a man asking for a cream to get rid of his daughter's nightmares. And the sales assistant attended is so resignedly repeating, sir, please listen to what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. I feel like, I don't mean to be like sexist, but I feel like that's such a dad thing. It's, oh, yeah, I'm going to yeah. go to the chemist please. to get a, a cream. Please help yeah. me. The mum normally yeah. does all this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so what's this next one? I do. Yeah, so this I feel like 
sometimes Twitter becomes like this validation, like therapy tool for me because I find other people who do things that I do. And I'm like, oh my God, it's not me. That's just a weirdo. But this I was see, Zoe yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Dr. Zoe is. And she said, I think one of the things that often gets me into trouble is asking why though about everything. And I'm not, and if I'm not 100% behind the answer, it's hard for me to follow the instruction or get behind the concept. You've either got my buy-in as it makes sense or you lost me forever. And oh, I am God. so literal. I feel like I need an explanation for everything. And I think it can sometimes come across as people thinking that I'm questioning their motives or whether I think that they're wrong or doing something stupid. And it's, if I'm not asking, does that make sense? I'm asking why? Because I just yeah, have this craving. Totally. It's like I need to figure it out in my brain for it to make any sort of sense to me. And I think, yeah, that can be interpreted sometimes as being defiant or just being awkward, I think. Do, do you uh, find, I mean, are you quite, do you like explanations for stuff or you I quite like go do. with the flow? No, I definitely do. I think I remember a particular time and I got bollocks by a urology reg because they had a thing where I'd come from medicine. So I think I was at the beginning of the Dunning-Kruger curve, like I was starting <laughs> to think I knew stuff. I'd come from medicine and they were like, for every catheter chain, we get 80 milligrams of gentamicin. I was like, why do you give such a tiny dose? That's nothing. What is the point? Why don't you give the treatment? And they're like, oh, that's just what we do. And I remember them when they go, that's just what we do, being like, yeah, I do. But why? I don't buy yeah. That. Oh, why? Yeah. And um, I was like, that's not. And then this theology yeah. reg was just like, that's what we do. That's what you do here. If you want to work here, that's what you're mm. going to do. Like, okay, all right. But okay, yeah. I don't want to do that though. It just seems really mean as well. Yeah, it is. And it's people say, yeah, the reasons of, oh, it's just because I said so or because that's what we've always done or, or where people say, oh, because the policy says. They're yeah, never, those are so. not real reasons because. No. For one, there's never a policy that says what you think it says. Like, that doesn't exist. <laughs> someone has told you that bullshit in years gone by, and now you perpetuate that and carry it on. And it's if you can't tell me a good enough reason, it, you shouldn't have to do it. I think that should be the rule. Yeah. yeah. That's because that's the shit that my mum used to pull on me when I was a kid. If I was trying to just be defiant, and, and yeah, just because, or just be, I said so. And it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> it worked back then, but not anymore. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Oh, what's this one? No jam sponge for you. Oh yeah, so that feel that felt really tight for this. So this was a, this was a diabetic patient who was actually telling her story about how a HCA trying to stop her from having a cake because she was <laughs> diabetic. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so mean. But tired from my a, cold dead hands. Oh gosh, if it was me, they would have had to. So there would have been yeah. some sort of standoff. But this was a tweet from Ellie at Ellie Rose Heckle who says, nurses are now telling me I can't eat my jam sponge. I said, I'm about to have 12 units of insulin. It's going to cover it and my blood sugar. Just let me eat it. <laughs> the dramatics, honestly, the way the HCA ran off to tell on me. I was about to eat it. I was like, oh gosh, as if you, it's bad enough that you're in hospital. And you think, oh, I'll just look forward to that jam sponge because undoubtedly your tea would have been some sort of mixture of grey, beige, carbohydrate yeah. with gravy on it like it always is. And then, yeah, you get, oh, I'm telling on you, eating the sponge. Oh, that's, quite, that's quite humiliating, isn't it? I'm it an is. adult. I like how Bethany Kelly, who's a diabetes specialist nurse, said, please have custard and an extra portion and bloody enjoy it, kiss. Yeah, if you prescribe jam and custard, I totally would. But yeah. this reminds me of a restaurant I went to once. And like, obviously, I'm celiac and I should be gluten-free, but I don't have <laughs> the classical symptoms of that. And so often I do find kind of, bits of gluten creeping into my diet especially if I'm in a restaurant where 
things are just really shit on the menu for gluten-free and I'm just like, do you know what? I'm paying for this. I'm going to enjoy myself. But this one time, I think I'd asked for the gluten-free menu and I'd ordered something off that and I wanted some fries with it as well and none of the options had fries. And so I just said, I'll have a portion of fries. And the guy was like, oh, no, you can't because we can't guarantee that they've not touched anything in the kitchen that's got gluten in it. No. And I said, oh, no, that's fine. There's not gluten in them. Even if it's just contaminated, it's fine. Like, I don't have that type of reaction. And he was like, no, I can't serve you the fries because you've told me that you're celiac. So, no. And I was just like, no, but I'm like... How dare you? Yeah, I said, I'm happy to take the risk. Like, I I know... I'm an adult. Yeah, there's no flour in them. You've just told me it might be... It's just a contact issue. I'll take that risk. It's fine. And he was like, no, because you might sue us. And I was like, I just want French (laughs) fries, please. And there was like this whole back and forth. And I was like, do you want me to sign a consent form? Like, I'll do it. I was the principal now. I was like having those fries. And then even when (laughs) other people on the table ordered fries, he was like, but are they for her? And they were just, I was just like, oh my God, I'm like mid thirties. Yeah. It was safe to say I never went back there, but I just think. Just Dare let they? people have what they want to have if they're choosing, yeah. yeah. The French fries. Especially God's if you're sake. sick in hospital, man. Just have yeah. the jam and roly-poly and custard. Yeah. Oh, my God, exactly. you, link this, you link this one that stressed me out. So it says, I remember learning that Indeed hides jobs to fuel desperation and Tinder pay mm. QA testers to make fake profiles. They would even talk to you and ghost you sometimes just to keep you on the app. And this one really gets me. And Uber upcharges depending on how low your battery is. I can't keep living like this. Wow. I think it's scary, isn't it? And I think it's unsurprising because obviously, like, the technology is obviously there Mm. because this is where we are now. But it's that, I think, you don't like to think of it that it actually happens. You know it could happen, but you just don't like to think that you've been caught, that you're the ones that had the wool pulled over their eyes. And the Twitter thing really intrigued me, actually, because I, I do think that, I have found when I've been on the dating apps in the past, there's quite a few of the same people. And obviously I'm in myself in that because I'm still on them. But something is just feels off about it. And I have wondered whether is this real? And now I know that like bots exist and someone's tweeted this. I, it is quite a potential that there are kind of things and profiles that are being farmed just for money and engagement and downloads and things like that. Mm-hmm. I hate not being in control. I, I like to think that like, I know everything that's happening. And again, explanations for everything. So the fact that someone could be like ghosting me and they're not even a real person surprisingly doesn't help me deal with that. Mm. It just annoys me because I'm just like, how is a computer getting know, one up on me like this? Yeah, yeah it's totally. Annoying. I think we just need to go back to analog and pen and paper and just start again as you're saying. Yeah, before. I need to get myself a pen pal. Maybe that's how I find my, pal, my yeah. future husband. Yeah, yeah so you could back sc- in lonely hearts columns and yeah, <laughs> writing writing letters. Yeah, 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 friend. Yeah, um, and if anyone cool. wishes to apply, then the position is open. Yeah, it's a good yeah, one to oh end on. Is your DMs like, are open. Oh my god, the position of Bethan's husband is is currently oh accepting applications. You can pop them on Oriel. I will need a covering letter, supporting <laughs> statement. I'm going to make a Did score get... in Matrix actually of like. To yeah. point to PhD and like yeah, everyone. you get shortlisted. So if you don't make flapjacks regularly, that's, that's, that's that a gets a one. lot of points. Um, if you don't turn up to right. a date with a, a homemade flapjack, that's all, uh, automatic invitation for interviews. I thought you were so. suggesting that they DM you, and that I was just thinking on the DMs already a mess already. Oh, this, they are absolutely a mess, but this is a formal application process. It allows oh, me to enough. weed out some of the some yeah. of the riffraff. Undesirables, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, desirables, okay. yeah. <laughs> cool. So we've come up to time. 
Thank you for persisting with it. I'm glad we, we got through. We've got some, some good stuff. And we're going to be recording again in a few days' time. But we've got Yeah, literally, to, we should have we could done both of them tonight. I know. We could have done it. I don't actually one. remember much of the last hour. So I, don't, I hope this podcast comes out okay when we release yeah, it. But be... thanks for putting up with my drug ad. Analgesia adult brain, I should say. All legal it's drugs, been, of course. It's been a pleasure as always. Okay, guys. Yeah, so the next episode will be out next Sunday evening. Until then, thank you for listening and speak to you soon. Bye bye. Look after yourselves. Bye bye.